Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. Then it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. That was beautiful. In honor of Russia, I thought I'd bring my ukulele. <laughs> it's too bad we don't have a balalaka, right? <laughs> it's too bad you're not classically trained on the balalaka. <laughs> what about you, Luke? You ever played a balalaka? You know, I have one, dude. Like whenever I want to hook up with Russian chicks, you know. You actually have one? <laughs> no. <laughs> I was about to say, I don't know what you got, what you know. Well, you could probably, you could probably make one, right, on your. Uh, on the on the program that you use exactly to, i can fake it all <laughs> <laughs> to create our wonderful difference. our wonderful new theme song yeah dude our theme song sucks 
Don't call it wonderful. <laughs> it's terrible. Oh man, are you going to get us another one here pretty soon or something? If you want some some Japanese weed music, then yeah, sure. Oh, Japanese weed music. <laughs> What's uh what exactly um constitutes Japanese weed music or but, as you um, described it before, Japanese trap music? But, no, uh, uh, I was I'm trying to make a Japanese love trap. Uh, I said weeb like W E E B. Oh, okay. That, that's, weeb. That's, yeah, that's okay. what you would call someone that's like one of those one of those guys that's like obsessed with Japanese culture. Um uh, otaku is like the nice word for it, you know. But like if you're insulting them, you would call them a weeb. You know, and those are the guys that like read the read manga all day long and like eat only ramen noodles and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I mean, we're talking about non-Asians here. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah, just just westerners, but uh I I've been playing so much GDR lately that I've been exposed to a lot of that. So <laughs> You've been exposed to such good songs such as You Are My Wife. Oh, no. no it's, <laughs> it's not included. That's terrible. Well, hey, guys. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. It's been, uh, it's been a couple of weeks. And, and thank you, by the way, Rob, for your ukulele rendition there. You're welcome. Why well, don't you end the show tonight with some ukulele? I, I, I directed <laughs> the farts that way, so you can't even... <laughs> directed the raspberries. <laughs> Well, uh, tonight, guys, we have on Mark Schaus, who is the um, host of a podcast called Russian Rulers History Podcast. He also calls it Russian History Retold. And we are going to talk about, unless you haven't guessed, we're going to talk about Russia. We're going to talk about Russian history. We're going to talk about the impact of that history on Russia and also what's going on currently there and also our relationship with Russia. So this is going to be kind of like a timely episode tonight. We've kind of talked about a lot about this with like the WikiLeaks and uh, what's whether Russia hacked into our and influenced our last election cycle and basically got Trump elected. So that's uh, one of the things that we might tackle tonight, see what he thinks about that. But uh, I just want to ask you guys, it's been two weeks. Uh, how's everybody been? I'm Not dying. That I haven't, you're dying? I'm dying, dude. Are you? I've only got a few months left. Oh, man, that sucks. Were you going to donate your body to science? Nope. It's all for me. <laughs> and I'm going to... How selfish of you. Yeah, right. I'm going to make a badass urn, though. <laughs> Do you want me to put like? Do you want me to put it like a like an urn of like the god Pan? Exactly. Like it, it needs like it's got. It, it needs to be majestic. Let's it. just put it that way. Can we keep you here in the studio? <laughs> Maybe not all of you, but like, yeah, yeah. Like scatter my ashes on the board over there. Yeah. <laughs> How do you want your funeral, man? Do you want it like like a brutal like metal funeral? Yes, I want like people. I want like dual guitars on stage, like playing a sweet ass solo and like. They're like headbanging in unison. Do you want bare-breasted women like covering themselves in ashes? They're serving bare-breasted women serving everyone at my funeral beers, like pints of beers, dude. Fresh, <laughs> fresh and cold. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, man. and like huge fire pits. On yeah, the, yeah, that sounds great. So you know, <laughs> you need to get get on that dying thing there, like. Yeah. If you are actually dying, I'm gonna feel bad about saying that. But, <laughs> no, uh, no, I just got bronchitis. I'm just uh, kidding. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've had a bit of a cold. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is that time of year. Yeah. In Tennessee, you can't decide what uh, what season it is. Uh, also, at the end of the show, I kind of wanted to get into um, a meme that is going around. Luke knows what I'm talking about. 
Catch me outside. <laughs> yeah, how about that? The, the show is degraded. It's time to stop. Uh, no, I, I, uh, I just think it's just one of those drop the bomb moments. But uh, right now, I want to talk about a little bit something more serious. Uh, do you guys know what the term "deep state" means? Hmm. I, I could imagine it would have something to do with meditation. No. Although there is the such thing in there, but not, not in the context I'm thinking of it. I got nothing. Well, deep state is a term that is used by some researchers to look beyond what is in the government or the political parties and more like who the real movers and shakers of a state such as the United States of America would be. People Why don't you in, just say Illuminati? Oh well, yeah, the Illuminati. I would have known. People, people in the people in industry, finance, all those kind of things. That's that's what we a military industrial complex. That was would be what you would term as the deep state. And this is uh, a term that I believe, and if anybody's out there can correct me, that was termed by uh, a historian and philosopher named Peter Dale Scott who started talking about the idea of the deep state, I believe, in relationship to the CIA and intelligence agencies and also the military-industrial complex and how all those interweave. Uh, it's not a term, however, that you have seen on like mainstream media. Nobody's talking about that. However, right after Trump was elected, I was watching, just a few days after, mm -hmm. I was watching... BBC America, and they had on a, which I would consider BBC to be mainstream media, right? Just not our mainstream media. And they had on talking about James Woolsey, who was the former director of the CIA, uh, and his influence at the time in the Trump transition team. And they actually used in that um, news piece the term deep state, which completely blew my mind because I had never heard it before in that context in the mainstream media. So there's been a lot of talk lately about the deep state, whether Trump is actually a counterpoint to the deep state, like Alex Jones and others would want him to be, or he is in bed with the deep state. And this is an article written by Nafaz Ahmed, who sounds like an interesting guy that I might like to get on the show. Um, and it's kind of a long article, so I'm not going to read the whole thing because it is extremely long, but I do want to cover some of the points that he talks about. And this is also uh, is very timely considering that uh, both Jeff Sessions and Betsy DeVos have now been confirmed. Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education that has no experience as a teacher, but anyway. Uh, how the Trump regime was manufactured by war inside the deep state. A systemic crisis in the global deep system has driven the violent radicalization of a deep state faction. Investigative journalists recovering an academic tracking the crisis of civilization, Nafiz Ahmed. A special report published by Insurge Intelligence, a crowdfunded investigative journalism project for people on the planet. Blah, blah, blah. President Donald Trump is not fighting a war on the establishment. He's fighting a war to protect the establishment from itself and the rest of us. At first glance, this isn't obvious. 
Among his actions upon taking office, Trump vetoed the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Remember when he did that? The controversial free trade agreement, which critics rightly said would lead to U.S. job losses while giving transnational corporations massive power over national state policies on health, education, and other issues. Trump further plans to ditch the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP, between the EU and the U.S., which would have diluted key state regulations on the activities of transnational corporates on issues like food safety, the environment and banking, and to renegotiate NAFTA, potentially heightening tensions with Canada. Trump appears to be in conflict with the bulk of the U.S. intelligence community and is actively seeking to restructure the government to minimize checks and balances and thus consolidate his executive power. His chief strategist, Steve Bannon, has completely restructured the National Security Council under unilateral presidential authority, while Bannon and his chief of staff, Richard Rance Priebus, now have permanent seats on the NSC's Principals Committee. The Director of National Intelligence and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff are barred from meetings except when requested for their expertise. That's interesting. Yeah. The Secretary of Energy and U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. have been expelled entirely. Trump's White House has purged almost the entire senior staff of the State Department and tested tested the loyalty of the Department of Homeland Security with its new quote-unquote Muslim ban order. So what is going on? One approach to framing the Trump movement comes from Jordan Greenhall, who sees it as a conservative red religion insurgency against the liberal blue church, globalist establishment, the deep state. Okay, in quotation marks. Greenhall suggests essentially that Trump is leading a nationalist coup against corporate neoliberal globalization using new tactics of coll- tactics of collective intelligence, but wish to outsmart and outspeed his liberal establishment opponents. But at best, this is an extremely partial picture. In reality, Trump has ushered in something far more dangerous. The Trump regime is not operating outside the deep state, but mobilizing elements within it to dominate and strengthen it for a new mission. The Trump regime is not acting to overturn the establishment, but to consolidate it against a perceived crisis of a wider transnational deep system. The Trump regime is not a conservative insurgency against the liberal establishment, but an act of ideologically constructing the current crisis as a conservative liberal battleground led by a particularly radicalized white nationalist faction of a global elite. I love the the language here, though, with the use (laughs) of the word regime. I I don't know if I quite put it that way, but anyway. The act is a direct product of a global systemic crisis, but is a short-sighted and ill-conceived reaction preoccupied with surface sim- symptoms of that crisis. Unfortunately, those hoping to resist the Trump reaction also fails to understand the sy- system dynamics of the crisis. All this can be understood when we look at the big picture. That means the following. We must look a little more closely at the individuals inside Trump's administration, the wider social and institutional networks they represent, and what emerges from their being interlocked in government. We must contextualize this against two factors, the escalation of global systemic crisis and the Trump's regime's ideological framings of of that crisis, both for themselves and for public consumption. We must connect this with the impact on the transnational deep system and how that links up with the U.S. deep state. And we must then explore what this all means in terms of the scope of actions likely to be deployed by the Trump regime to pursue its discernible goals. You getting all this, Luke? You writing all this down? Yeah, dude. All up here. Still trap. All right. Still (laughs) Japanese weeb trap music. All right. So this he... The Trump regime, this is the money monsters. These are the people on Wall Street that are in Trump's uh, cabinet and other appointees. 
If all Trump's appointees are confirmed, his administration will be among the most business-heavy, corporate-friendly governments in American history. Five of the 15 people nominated by Trump as cabinet secretaries have no public sector experience and have spent their entire careers in the corporate sector. That would be more business people with no public sector experience than have ever served in the cabinet at any one time, concludes Pew Research Center. Betsy DeVos has been nominated for education secretary. Like I said, she's now confirmed. She's a billionaire married to the Amway conglomerate. Andrew Puzdar has been nominated as labor secretary. He's a billionaire CEO of fast food chain owner CKA, CKE Restaurants, which incidentally owns Hardee's and Carl's Jr. Trump's nominee for Commerce Secretary is Wall Street veteran Wilbur Ross. He's a billionaire financier who invests in buying and selling companies in distressed industries and who made his early fortune as a fund manager at the Rothschild Group. Talk about Illuminati, Rob. Steven Mnuchin, Trump's Treasury Secretary, is a former partner at the global investment bank Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs again, a hedge fund manager, and until his nomination, a board member of the Fortune 500 financial holding company, CIT Group. He's also a member of the Yale University Secret Society, Skull and Bones. So there's you some more Illuminati, Rob. Which, by the way, Goldman Sachs, Steve Bannon used to work for Goldman Sachs as well. Vince Viola is Trump's nominee for Army Secretary. He's a billionaire, former chairman of the New York Mercantile Exchange and current chairman of Virtue Financial, a high-frequency trading firm. Linda McMahon is Trump's small business administrator. She's a co-founder and former CEO of WWE, yes, World Wrestling Empire, which is now valued at around $1.5 billion and married to billionaire WWE promoter Vincent McMahon. Gary Cohn is Trump's chief economic advisor and director of the White House National Economic Council. He just left his previous post as president and chief operating officer at Goldman Sachs for the job. There you are yet again. Anthony Scaramucci has served as a senior advisor to Trump on the executive committee of the presidential transition team. Previously, he was founding co-managing partner of global investment like Skybridge Capital. Like Steve Bannon, he also began his career at Goldman Sachs. Walter J. Clayton is Trump's nominee for the Securities and Exchange Commission, the financial industry's top regulatory watchdog. Yet Clayton himself is a Wall Street lawyer who has worked on deals for major banks, such as Barclays Capital's acquisition of Lehman Brothers assets, the sale of Bear Stearns to J.P. Morgan Chase, and the U.S. Treasury capital investment in Goldman Sachs. In the same capacity, he has campaigned to reduce restrictions on foreign public companies and sought lax enforcement of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. His wife, Gretchen Butler, works for Goldman Sachs as a private wealth investor. <laughs> Trump's really, really, uh, really getting rid of the establishment and draining the swamp, isn't he? Yeah. This- Trump's crack team of money monsters is clearly not planning on acting in the interests of American workers. They will instead do what they know best, using considerable power of the American state to break down as many regulatory constraints on global banking finance as possible with a special view to privilege U.S. banks and corporations. Okay, then he talks about, he says, fossil fuel freaks, talking about Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, former CEO of Exxon, that really serves the people. Uh... So I'm not. I'm going to skip this part because it is rather long. But uh, this is all re- rather worth reading. Uh, Black Ops Brigade. Now this is all interesting here, and uh, with a guess in the near future, I do want to talk about this. 
Black Ops Brigade, it would be mistaken to assume that Trump's conflicts with the U.S. intelligence community mean he is necessarily at odds with the military-industrial complex. On the contrary, his defense appointees and advisors are embedded across the military-industrial complex. Trump's education secretary, DeVos, is the sister of Eric Prince, the notorious founder of disgraced private security firm Blackwater, now known as Academy, with an I, which was outed for slaughtering 17 Iraqi civilians. A source in Trump's transition team confirms that Eric Prince has advised Trump's team on intelligence and security issues. Prince now runs another security firm, Frontier Services Group. He supports Trump's proposal for the U.S. military to grab Iraq's oil and recommends the escalated deployment of private defense contractors across the Middle East and North Africa, such as in Libya, to crack down on refugees. How pleasant. General Mad Dog Matt James Mattis is Trump's Secretary of Defense. He was also, until his resignation, due to his political appointment on the board of directors of General Dynamics, the fifth largest private defense contractor in the world. Mattis is also on the board of Theranos, a biotechnology company known for its questionable automated finger stick blood test technology. What? Lieutenant General Mike Flynn is Trump's national security advisor. He is a former head of the Pentagon's defense intelligence agency, DIA, under Obama, and a long-standing military intelligence and special operations insider. Previously, he was Director of Intelligence for the Joint Special Operations Command, Director of Intelligence for the U.S. Central Command, Commander of the Joint Functional Component Command for Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance, Chair of the Military Intelligence Board, and Assistant Director of National Intelligence. Flynn also runs Flynn Intel Group, a private intelligence consulting firm. Flynn has just co-authored a book with Michael Leiden, The Field of Fight, How We Can Win the Global War Against Radical Islam and Its Allies. Ladine is a leading neoconservative defense consultant and former Reagan administration appointee who was involved in the Iran-Contra affair as a consultant of then-U.S. National Security Advisor Robert McFarlane, currently a Freedom Scholar at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh-huh. He was a staunch advocate of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. He was directly involved with the yellow cake forgeries, attempting to fabricate a weapons of mass destruction threat to justify the war, and has campaigned for military interventions in Syria, Iran, and beyond. Ladine's aggressive foreign policy vision was deeply influential in the formation of the Bush administration's foreign policy strategy. It's worth noti- noting how low Ladine stoops with his political philosophy. In his 2000 book, Tocqueville on American Character, Ladine argues that in some situations, in order to achieve the most noble accomplishments, the leader may have to enter into evil. He even argues that this is sanctioned by the Christian God. Since it is the highest good, the defense of the country, it's one of those extreme situations in which a leader is justified in committing evil. That sort of thinking has led him to endorse the cauldronization of the Middle East. In 2002, he wrote in support of invading Iraq that one can only hope that we turn the region into a cauldron and faster, please. If there ever, if ever there were a region that richly deserved being cauldronized, it is the Middle East today. What does that mean? (laughs) That's what I kind of asked myself when I read it. Uh, I think it means that we're going to turn it into a boiling point for war. Well, if that's true, 
that's what they wanted to do, then they succeeded. Remember the whole thing we talked about with Peter Goodgame? Do you remember that? Like 2015 beginning? Is that the the Sunnis and the That was with Dr. Furnish, but he that's was talking right. he was talking more about how the elites have uh their influence in the Middle East in order to divide and conquer it and also to keep in a perpetual state of war in order to cut down on the population. Later on in this article, I'm not going to read that part, but he talks about uh, Henry Kissinger and some of his ideas. And that's some of the ideas a lot of these guys get right out of Kissinger is to make the is to make the Middle East so much a just boiling point for war. That's what cauterization means. That's real. That's real pleasant, isn't it? Yeah. That's, uh, that's a good like metal material right there. Yeah. Too. The cauterization of the. Yeah. Unsettling. General John F. Kelly is Trump Secretary of Homeland Security. He's a retired United States Marine Corps general who previously served under Obama as commander of the U.S. Southern Command, responsible for American military operations in Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. Before that, Kelly was a commanding general of the multinational force. Wet- National Force West in Iraq and the Commander of Marine Forces Reserve and Marine Forces North. Kelly is also a Vice Chairman of the Spectrum Group, a defense contractor lobbying firm, and on the board of directors of two other private Pentagon contractors, Michael Baker International and Sally Port Global. And then James Woolsey, the former CIA Director and Neoconservative Stalwart, a former Vice President and NSA contractor, Booz Allen Hamilton. I believe that's the one that Rebecca Roth talked about. The name's familiar, yeah. And among Michael Ledeen's bosses at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies was an early Trump supporter and a senior advisor to Trump on his transition team. He dropped out over reservations with Trump's plans to restructure the intelligence community. And then he goes on to... Goes on to uh, list all the other guys involved and then talks about how some of them are racist, especially Steve Bannon, Frank Gaffney and neo-Nazi connections. And so <sighs> Luke, what do you think? I think we're, we're all doomed. And <laughs> I mean, it, at least it'll make things interesting, I guess. <laughs> it's certainly doing that. Yeah. No, I'm with Luke, man. I, and so this guy's obviously way more knowledgeable about all this stuff than me. But I, you know, I, I felt this way since Trump first threw his name in the hat. It was like, you've got a guy who's never once cared about anybody or anything other than his own wealth and himself. And why would you put him in an extreme position of power and expect any less? Yeah. Unless you believe that you could control him. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there was, yeah, I'm sure that was a big part of how he got to the, you know, to that point. But the people who, people who thought he was going to, you know, be this great anti-establishment president and bring us back to like the golden age, you know, and Mm -hmm. like, I think that it's going to come, I think it's going to be pretty obvious pretty quick that that's not the case. Seems like he's going to make the, uh, he's like, he's going to make the deep state great again. I mean, I definitely think as time, as we were going through the um, the election process, I definitely could see that there was like the secret war going on, uh, especially among neoconservatives. There were those that agreed with Trump and there were those that agreed with, with Hillary. 
And uh, some of the ones that agreed with Hillary seem to be the more to be the more hawkish ones, especially on topics such as Russia. Uh, it talks about another one in this uh, in the I don't remember who it was, but one of the people that well Kissinger actually it was Kissinger that uh, still has a load of influence on a lot of people in the establishment because Kissinger is almost about as establishment as you can get other than like the skull and bones guys. But uh, Kissinger talking about how he wanted to have better relationships with Russia. And so I think that's where the split was, especially among the neoconservative movement. Yeah. And uh, there's more that one, you know, we have already seen a great deal about Iran. They've already been talking. Trump's already been talking about Iran. We want to do something about Iran. We're going to, you know, Iran's not, not going to enforce the deal that they made in 2015 with Obama. Uh, they're trying to get out of it. We need to do something. And you heard, I heard that over and over coming out of Trump's mouth in first the primary debates and then in the, then in the general election debates. And, you know, I don't think anybody really noticed it. But it, it, it's a real contradiction to me because Iran being Russia's ally, does he not think that Russia is not going to have a problem with it? Are we going to have, are we going to come to some kind of uh, deal with the Russians? Like I've been saying for so long. Right. So, like I said, only time will tell. Um, yeah, I just thought that was interesting. Uh, this is from Wikipedia. It's the, actually when I looked up deep state, it gave me state within a state. So this is from the book of knowledge just to kind of give a good definition of what that is. Uh, the state within a state is a political situation in a country when in an internal organ, deep state, such as the armed forces and civilian authorities, intelligence agencies, police, administrative agencies, and branches of government bureaucracy does not respond to the civilian political leadership. Although the state within the state can be conspiratorial in nature, the deep state can also take in the form of entrenched, unelected career civil servants acting in a non-conspiratorial manner to further their own interests. That's a direct contradiction right there. E.g. job security, enhanced power and authority, pursuit of ideological goals and objectives and the general growth of their agency. You got to conspire to do that. You got to breathe together, right? Uh, well, yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, you could be acting on your own for your own best interest, so I think that makes it non-conspiratorial. Mm -hmm. But And in opposition to the policies of elected officials by obstructing, resisting, and subverting the policies and directives of elected officials, the term, like many in politics, derives from the Greek language, kratos in kratai, later adopted into Latin as imperium in imperio, or status in statu. Etos. <laughs> Imperium in Imperio. There's your next metal band album. Luke. Nice. Wait, what? Wait, what is Imperium? Like that's already some kind of like. That's uh, Latin. Im, yeah, it's Latin Imperial. I mean, the emperor, the imperator, which is where oh, the okay. word emperor comes from. There is a band in Latin Imperial, I think. Yeah, I'm sure there is. All right. Well. We got about 10 minutes and we need to call the guests. So I'm going to call this one and guys, we're going to talk to Mark Schaus about Russia. And then at the very end of the show, we have something much more important than the deep state to discuss. And that's deep idiocy. Nice. We'll be back. 
Well, guys, uh, one of the when I'm not listening to the kind of weird and strange and the conspiratorial podcasts lately, I've been really getting into history podcasts. And one of those is a podcast that is called Russian History Retold. And it's actually on iTunes as Russian Rulers History Podcast. Uh, but uh, we have the host of that show on, Mr. Mark Schaus, and we're going to talk about uh, Russia, talk about its history, talk about what's going on now. As I said before in the intro, this is a very timely subject. So, Mark, uh, welcome to Conspiranormal. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for coming on. You're a little bit of a different guest than what we've had on before. <laughs> so usually most of the people that we have on from other podcasts are usually the uh, the uh, kind of like uh, conspiracy or the supernatural realm of people that deal in that subject. And we're going to talk a little bit about history tonight, which, of course, history is one of my true passions in life, uh, along with the other stuff. So... Uh, but uh, I want to talk about what inspired you to start this podcast. I believe you started back in 2010. So it's been like, what, seven years almost for you? It'll be seven years on April 30th. Excellent. Yeah, I have a family background. I'm half Russian, half German. I'm the first uh, American born in my family. Uh, my mother's side was Russian. Father's was uh, German. And they came here back in 53. And what they did is they would tell me a lot of the history of their peoples. And I was always fascinated by it. Uh, my brother, who's 10 years older, he got a major in history. I majored in history in college, uh, finished my major after my sophomore year, really got deeply into it. And it was just hearing these stories and knowing the people from Russia, the expatriates, when I grew up in New York. And I would hear their stories about their love of their country. Uh, their hatred for communism was something mm -hmm. that was very deep. Uh, but then I had a professor in, at Queens College in New York named Dr. Paul Average. Uh, Paul was an amazing professor. He taught two subjects, Russian history and anarchism. Huh, interesting. So I took all three, you know, two years, one year of uh, Russian history and uh, – semester of anarchism with him and he just had a way of teaching that made you love it and i said paul i would i want to be a professor of russian history he looked at me and he said mark you only speak kuchni ruski which is kitchen russian huh. he says you could probably get some food on the streets of moscow probably find your way to the bathroom get a drink but that's about all and that's just not enough to be a professor I thought, boy, I really wanted to teach Russian history because I could do it with a passion. Well, from looking at my stats on podcast over the past seven years, I've taught more people Russian history than anybody else ever has. <laughs> That's uh, true. That's true. I had over 1.8 million subscribers total uh. over time. And I just went, you know, sorry he's not around, but, you know, I wanted to bring that passion in there. And it's this immense history. Yes. America is, what, 300 years old. Germany, well, they started in 1870, I believe, mm -hmm. the German nation. And, you know, they, they went back into the Germanic tribes. But as a peoples together, Russia's well over a thousand years. And to me, that's just amazing. And then the culture of it, 
I still don't speak Russian very well. Can't read it. But my library is pretty big. Looking at all the different aspects of Russian history and all the different opinions out there. I just love it. I just find it, I find it interesting that somewhere in your college transcript is a, is a course labeled anarchism. I think that's, uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty interesting. Well, it's, it's, it's definitely taught me a lot that I didn't know about, about Russian history as well. And I consider myself somebody pretty versed in history, but there's a lot that I just did not know. Uh, and I love how, you know, in the beginning of the show that you, of course you went through the whole course of, of Russian history adding in some little special shows here and there. And then once you got to Vladimir Putin, which is current now, uh, then you kind of went back and started covering things like the Crimean War and uh, those type of topics, the Mongol invasion. And now you then you started going like kind of like back in time, and now you're covering the Russian Civil War, which is an interesting topic as well. Yeah, I started... You know, I decided to look back at the rulers one more time because I had gotten so much more interesting information about them. You know, I've just finished the uh, the three Alexanders and Nicholas and as well as Paul, the uh, son of Catherine the Great. And I just went, you know, I got to pause here because the Russian Civil War is a war that very few Americans and people in the West really understand. Right. You know, we think of the American Civil War, where we lost 650,000 men. But you'd have people watching some of the battles up on hills with picnic baskets. The Russian Civil War was very different. The people were getting slaughtered by both sides. Or actually, it was really four sides to this story. And as I get into it over the next few weeks, yeah. I'll show you that it wasn't just the reds and the whites. There were the greens, the blacks. And shades of white, gray, and orange. So there were a lot of different types of people in there. And over 20 million people died, most of them civilians. So this was one of the most catastrophic events in human history. And when you look at Russian history, the word catastrophic event occurs (laughs) quite a number of times. Right, right. And we're going to talk about some of those. And you also point out, I point out too, that you had that Czechoslovak legion in Siberia that just wanted to get home. That's all that they cared about. And they pretty much started the the war going. So that was another amazing story. Yeah, in and of itself. Absolutely. Did some of these people that when you were growing up, did some of these people that you encountered, were they people that left from the Civil War era or were they people that left kind of after World War II? What were some of their what were some of their stories? People that you uh, remember? I met a whole breadth of different people. My family had to they were part of the Russian Admiralty mm-hmm. and they were smart enough to leave early on the revolution. As soon as Tsar Nicholas was gone, they were like we're out of here. Yeah. Uh, they moved to Yugoslavia. Uh, my mom was born in uh, Serbia and Belgrade. And I met a lot of them who fought for the whites, uh, talk, talked about the Civil War. Uh, not one ever talked about it with this kind of glorious battle that we were fighting. Yeah. Every one of them was the brutality of it. Uh, I met a few that uh, some of my best friends, uh, their parents escaped from, uh, or the grandparents escaped in the 50s from the Soviet Union. Uh, Father was in somewhere in the military, wouldn't tell me exactly, kind of 
might be probably KGB or something like that, and got out through Finland. I talked to them about their you know, feelings. Uh, also met some that you know came out at the end when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, I actually met a. I was working in a camera shop in New York City in the seventies, and I met a fighter pilot from the Soviet Union who escaped. Huh. And he talked about one of the biggest problems he had was the theft of the alcohol that they used to de-ice the windshields. Uh huh. And they would replace it with water. And he said, that really wasn't very good for us. You know, he said, but they steal it to drink it. (laughs) And he says, I had to leave because I was scared I was going to die in a plane crash because of what these people were doing. And alcoholism alcoholism is so rampant rampant. in the Soviet Union. And I I actually got to go to East Germany uh, back in 1970. And we had a relative who was a nuclear physicist, and he somehow couldn't make it to dinner. My dad and I, at the last minute, he had a call. Uh, but we were followed by what we would deem Russians, Russian KGB agents, the whole time we were in East Berlin. And the one thing I you know, really wanted to share this, because I remember this. My dad would say, this place looks tryst which in German means kind of sad and mm-hmm. depressing. Mm-hmm. I remember in 70, there were still remnants of the bullet holes from World War II. Mm. We're in West Berlin, where my grandfather lived. and He was a world-renowned violinist, and West Berlin was kind of the art town where all the retired artists and musicians would live. Everything was rebuilt. On the other side, right. it wasn't. And so much of that, because they, the Russians took, or the Soviets took, all the good stuff that was in the East Bloc nations and shipped it back to Russia and to rebuild their area. And so we just saw this disparity and I had to overcome this prejudice against Russia and the Soviet Union. And when I was doing this podcast to make sure that I stayed in the middle to not be so judgmental about things, that's been the hardest part of my years of going over right. Russian history. Right. Because, I mean, your, I guess your mom's family, I would say they were a little bit biased <laughs> to one side. And so you kind of had that bias yourself that was, that was put on to you at a certain point. Have you ever been to Russia? Have you ever visited there? Not yet, unfortunately. Uh, you know, I've had to think about this uh, with criticizing Putin. Yeah. You know, do you want to go out there? I know of a fellow podcaster who did, who lives uh, in one of the uh, Baltic states, and he's been banned from going mm-hmm. into Russia. So I'm thinking, you know, you've got to be a little careful. There are a few people have disappeared <laughs> yeah. going out there. So I want to, you know, be a, a little careful, but not too careful. You know, if I'd ever go because I've criticized him for something he did, uh, so be it. But I would like to see, you know, St. Petersburg, and I did sure. find where my family probably had estates near Moscow, just recently going through uh, archives. So you'd like to see that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would too. I'd love to see, well, I'd love to go anywhere, just about, <laughs> honestly. But uh, I, I want to talk about, and, and the way that I've got this structured is not necessarily to go through the course of Russian history, because that would kind of take forever. But there's certain bullet points of where I think that 
Russia kind of diverges itself from the West, becomes this isolated country, basically. And that is very important in understanding Russia's psyche, almost, and how they think and how they view themselves and view the world. And the first bullet point, and I, I don't know if you had spoke, I can't remember if you had talked about this in the show or not, but I'm sure that you are familiar of it. And that is the, the role, uh, well, the role of Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire, basically, as an influence on Russia, and also how the Russian feeling on the Fourth Crusade, uh, when basically the Western Europe attacked the East and took over the empire. Because I feel like that is something that, even though Russia has n- had nothing to do with that, still lingers in their mind as a as a form of uh what they see they how they distrust the west. Well, absolutely. When we think of Russia, we have to first think of Kiev as being the seat of power of the people known as the Rus back around the 900s and the early 1000s. Uh they looked south to Byzantium. That was the city of the world. But a lot of people don't realize that Kiev was huge. It was larger than Paris. The sons of the uh, leaders of Kiev were married to people like the uh, king of Hungary uh, into England, France. They sent Mm -hmm. their daughters and sons out there. So this was a Western-like country. And then when the Fourth Crusade came along and they went in in the West and particularly the Catholics at the time, charged in there and just destroyed this city. The Russian people had a deep feeling for it because they had all converted uh, to Russian Orthodoxy under Vladimir the Great. Uh, There's a story about how they chose their religion, uh, how much of it is myth and how much of it is reality up for debate because we only have one source called the primary chronicles right what they said is they looked out and they said well we send out envoys and come back and tell us you know, why we should pick your religion and they looked at judaism islam catholicism and then they had a group go down to byzantium and they saw the great cathedral and went of all the places on earth this is where god must live because it was so amazing, the uh, Hagia Sophia. And it just went, we have to be part of this. And then one of the daughters of the head of uh, the Caesar of Rome, of Constantinople, was married to uh, Vladimir. So they became not a vassal of Byzantium, but a group that looked to them for leadership. And when they felt that the Catholics, when they did the Fourth Crusade, just despoiled this beautiful city, and they felt disgusted by it. And it was at a time when the Great Schism was going on between the Catholics and the Eastern Church, which caused this great break, one side Orthodox, one side Catholic. So the Russians went with the Orthodox side. So they now viewed the West as being this evil group of people that would dare to despoil one of the most beautiful towns cities in the world and that was the beginning of this you know deep-seated feeling against the west (laughs) that permeated for many many years 
Yeah, because it seems like that that was that that was really one of the turning points, right there. Um, Constantinople being taken over, and, and I even I even had uh, watched a. It was something on YouTube, and it was I think it was like hosted by a Russian Orthodox monk or priest, and it was translated into English, and they basically talked about the Venetians and. Uh, how evil they were and their influence on the the Roman Catholic Knights to destroy Constantinople. And it really gave me a big insight onto exactly how they think. And the next event would be the Mongol invasion. And what, so what happened there with Russia? How did that further kind of isolate them from the West? And what did it, what did that do to to their viewpoint of, I guess, being in between the West and the East, so to speak. Well, that, again, we use the word catastrophic. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The Mongols came in and they just destroyed Russian towns. Uh, the destruction of Ryazan is one of the great uh, pieces of literature that we have out there describing how they killed every man, woman, child, dog, cat, anything. That moved in that town. And what the Mongols would do is they would come in, they would destroy towns, anybody who resisted, and they go to the next town and go, would you like to resist or would you just like to give up? <laughs> well, the stories would get to them and they go, boy, we, we've had it. Thank you. You know, We'll just yeah. be on your side. And what happened was is the Mongols started reaching out there. They built what you would call as a cultural and societal wall without building a physical one. Built a wall where that's where no more influence, no more trade would go through this area just west of Russia. And the Renaissance, the Russians missed all that new change in, in science and culture, and art, music. Russians never saw. They didn't see the changes out there. They started going kind of into themselves. And what's interesting is many of these Russian people, to get away from the Mongols and having to pay tribute, would go into the forests in the north, mm -hmm. towards Siberia, the Ural Mountains, and they would hide out there. And they thought, we must have done something wrong. God must be punishing us. And they built these monasteries, and they would build these churches. And so many of these men and women would follow them. And they became very isolationist and they felt that the only way for us to be saved is to go back to our roots and to you know be more religious and they became much more fervently religious than many in the west did and it was a different type of religion so when they finally did meet each other the west looked at the russians and go these guys are crazy they're you know they're the things they do in churches are nuts we don't understand this. This makes no sense. They're barbarians. They're Orientals. We should look mm -hmm. down on them. And the Russians looked at the West and said, "Wow, what are you all about? And you're so different than us, and we don't want to be part of that." They looked different. The Russians were had the long beards, and their outfits were very different than the West. And that kept on going until around the year 1700 with Peter the Great coming. Right. So. When they attacked in 1240, we know that they broke the yoke of the Mongols 
about 250 years later, but they didn't really break the traditions and the, the set in their stone oriental uh, cultural policies until around 1700. We're talking 460 years yeah, of isolation. It's a, a long time. It's a real yeah, so they got a very big fear of the West. And then around that time, what should happen? They get invaded from the West. And what people think about, they think of Napoleon invading the Mongols and Hitler. Yeah. There's actually about nine invasions into Russia. And the, the one after the Mongols was Charles XII of Sweden. And he almost succeeded. And defeating Peter and destroying Russia. Now, there was another one before that, the Time of Troubles, and they came from Poland. And there was actually somebody who uh, was the, they had a series of what they call the False Dimitris. There was a young boy, Dimitri, who was supposed to be Tsar, but he died. And some say he was murdered when he was a little boy. And then all of a sudden, when things went to hell in a handbasket during the Time of Troubles, here comes these pretenders to the throne, and many of them came from Poland, Lithuania, come from that way. So the Russians had this view of Poland as, hey, you've invaded us. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not big friends of yours. There was this, this history now of Polish-Russian animosity, and the Poles were Catholics, Russians Orthodox. So there was that religious thing again. And so there was a lot of fear and suspicion of the West going way back when right and there was also dealing with poland this idea that poland was kind of the corridor if it wasn't poland that was invading russia proper then it was somebody else invading russia through poland so yep. they would come from the west and that was that right that little lane you know was that that was the autobahn to moscow it right. was poland yeah, so you would have, uh, I, I mean, especially, you know, two times in the 20th century, right? That's where the Germans came from, you know, through Poland. So it became very important, I think, for the Russians to 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 control Poland in some kind of a way or to control their immediate surroundings, which I want to get to in a little bit. Well, let's talk about the Tsar, because the Tsars, as you mentioned, Peter the Great. Uh, let's talk about how you know they begin to come out of the Mongol yoke, and what kind of effect do you think that the autocracy of Tsardom had on Russia? How did it kind of hold in some? Because Peter the Great was kind of a modernizer. Catherine the Great was in a way, but in many ways, the the whole idea of Tsardom just kind of held Russia back even more so. And we have to go way back. Uh, yeah. We start with Vladimir back around 990, in that era, 980. And his forced conversion of the Russian people to orthodoxy. But it was this, we have to understand, Russia was at a crossroads of a lot of migrant groups. Uh, go back into the 500s where the Cumans and the Avars and the Huns would crisscross the country, you know, and just savage the lands. And what they wanted to get was a strong leader. And the first real invasion, we could say, were the Varangians, the Vikings, that according to the primary chronicles, they were invited to invade the land of the Rus. I have some question about that, saying that they probably just came on their own. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, and, but it was to have a strong leadership to protect the people. Was, I got to tell you, they were invaded, enslaved constantly. And they would come from the West. They would come from the South. They would come from the North, from the East. And so they wanted that strong leader. And Vladimir was the first one. Then you have Ivan the first, who was called Ivan Moneybags. Because what he did is he would collect the money from the people, give it to the Mongols, but it protected the people from these invasions. And so they didn't have to worry about things. And they saw, hey, this guy's pretty good. Yeah, it cost us a lot of money, but we're safe. Our women and children are not being you know, captured, raped, and sold into slavery. That's good. Ivan the, the Terrible, which is kind of a misnomer. His name was Ivan Grozny, which means more of Ivan Awesome. Yeah. Uh. Not terrible. It's just because he was a tough guy. But he really took Zardom to another level. And he was the one that took the mantle from Byzantium. Because he figured Rome was the first great capital. Constantinople was the second one. Moscow was now the third one. Mm-hmm. They took the mantle and they were the new Rome. And the head of Rome, the Caesar or the Tsar, was now the ultimate power. And it was really the ultimate power to protect them from bad times. And when Ivan had killed his heir uh, in a fit of rage, and then what was left was his other feeble son, Fyodor. When Fyodor died, there were no more of the Varangian or Rurik line of Russian rulers. And we have the time of troubles. Boris Goodenough comes around. He can't control things. They don't have a strong czar to lead the people and to protect them. And during this time of troubles, you have a lot more invasions, more people dying. Then they have to get a strong czar. And that's when the Romanovs came about. And they picked this nice, meek young boy who liked to, as my professor, Dr. Average, would say, liked to play with clocks. <laughs> uh He's easily controlled by the boyars, also kind of the earls and noblemen. And so they lifted this Romanov family to the Tsardom because they needed someone to focus on, someone who would take care of them and protect them. Because as the Mongols broke up down in the south, you still had the Crimean Tatars, Azerbaijan. You had a number of different, you know, different types of remnants of the Mongols that were still invading into Russia and then stealing people yeah, cry, and Crimea. Into slavery. Right. Crimea was a big one. Yep. It was a big Khanate there, as they call it. So the Khan of Crimea was a very uh, dangerous person to the Russians, and they fought against them and finally crushed them. And so when they did, that was their land. They won Crimea. They no longer had to worry about that area that would you know, come and invade the Russian people. So it's very deeply ingrained into them, more as we go along in history. And then we have Alexei, and then we finally get to Peter the Great, who says, you know, this Russian people, when Charles invaded, they got beaten up pretty bad. And Peter looked around and went, we have a lousy army. We have, a lousy, we have no navy. We got to change things. And we're too far in the past and with a lot of resentment toward him he decided to pull that country to the modern times that you know when 
talk about that time. And just to modernize things, to get rid of the old beards, you'd have a beard tax, or we would actually just shave your beard. If he saw you on the street, he'd just come out with a knife and just cut your beard off. Uh, whether we <laughs> cut your chin with it, hey, so be it. Uh, and it was pretty brutal. Uh, then he built a new capital, St. Petersburg. And tens of thousands of people died building this great city on a swamp in the north. And, you know, it's a city of bones. It's built on tens of thousands of people. But he thought mm-hmm. we needed to get to the future. Right. And move this country forward. We can no longer be this oriental country. We have to start looking to the West. But many of the people within Russia despised what he did, broke with tradition. Russia is a land of traditions. Uh, being a member of the Russian Orthodox Church for many years when I would go to services and they talked about traditions that were five, six, seven hundred years old that they didn't want to break. And to them, that was something that saved them from the Mongols, saved them from all the bad times. Yeah, the four-hour weddings. Oh, yes. I was <laughs> I was my brother when he got married. Uh, I had to hold a crown over his head for something like an hour and a half. <laughs> and this is this is no two pound or one pound crown. This is a crown. Yeah. And I yeah. still talk to my, my uh, sister-in-law's brother every once in a while, Leo, and say, man, could, how did we do that? <laughs> and he goes, I don't know. My arm, I couldn't move my arms <laughs> after it, you know, and, and Easter service, you know, it started at 11, finish at five. Oh, wow. 11 at night, five in the morning. Uh. And I knew, I knew the woman that I met, uh, brought up to the Easter service, uh, I later married my wife now, and I said, if you make it through a Russian Orthodox Easter, you can, you can be married to me. You can, you can survive in my family because <laughs> that's a marathon. Jeez. It's beautiful. I mean, the, the traditions are nice and everything and the customs, right. but that's kind of the Russian way. And, you know, you think they look at the Catholics, you have a, a guitar playing, you know, for Protestants or whatever other religion. You know, guitar service? Nah, that's just, you can't do that. And and they would really look down at everybody else's services saying it's, oh, just not proper, yeah. the right way to do things. So there was that, you know, and I think it had a lot to do with that Mongol invasion that they now no longer believed in the West. They didn't trust them. And this permeates their very soul. It's not just the mind. It's deep within the Russian people, if you ever get to talk to them, their distrust of the West. I mean, they've, they've been hurt enough times. You know, and we're not even into Napoleon yet. Yeah, yeah. So, we, yeah, we get to Napoleon, we get to that invasion, and we see kind of a kind of a loosening, and the, the role of the, the, the Decemberist revolt is kind of a interesting turning point. Because like really, you could see the the clock start to tick towards the revolution about a ninety years later. It was interesting. Was as uh, they defeated Napoleon in eighteen twelve, and they started turning him back, and they started marching toward Paris. Alexander and Napoleon, Alexander the first, was the Tsar of Russia. Uh, he really personally disliked Napoleon and wanted to hurt him bad. He had been insulted many times by Napoleon. Uh, and he had, you know, probably over a million Russians killed. 
between the war and civilians, and they had to burn Moscow, they had to burn large estates uh, in Ukraine. And his people suffered a great deal, so he just sent his troops all the way toward Paris. They got there in 1814. But there was a problem. The people, uh, the soldiers, especially the uh, officers, began to look around as they're marching through Germany and Belgium and Holland and France going, wow, these people are doing a lot better than we are. Even the peasants are doing better than we. Something's wrong here. Uh, why are we you know, under such an autocratic rule? And they have so many more freedoms and have a nicer life and everything seems to be better. So when they came back, they had a lot of dissent. And then after Alexander, quote unquote, dies, we may get to this later, uh, his <laughs> brother Constantine was supposed to be named Tsar. But Constantine was very happy where he was, in Poland, and he said, nope, I don't want to be Tsar, but he kind of didn't tell anyone. And then Nicholas I became czar, and a bunch of officers went, whoa, 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 this is not what we asked for. You're not supposed to be czar. What's going on here? Let's revolt. And it was a one-day revolt. But it was such that the people finally went, we want a different monarchy. We don't want an autocratic one. We want a constitutional monarchy like they have in England. We want to have things like they have in the rest of Europe. We're not Orientals. We're not Asians. We're Europeans, and we deserve to be thought of as that right unfortunately nicholas the first comes around and he just said no uh it's autocracy above all i am not just the ruler of russia russia is mine as a romanov i own russia it is all to me and even to the nobles you're nobles just because i say you can be i control everything so the dissent came around there, and people like Dostoevsky was in front of a firing squad. He was about to be executed. Nicholas let him go. Pushkin uh, was put down quite a bit, the great author. Yeah, yeah. And he had to send everything he wrote to Nicholas mm -hmm. to have it approved, or he would be in a lot of trouble. There was more, you know, some, I've heard some people say, well, the the czars didn't have a secret police. Oh, my gosh. They taught the KGB how to be a secret police. Yeah. The Okrana would control everything. Now, people were like, they had jokes about, well, the Okrana knows when I go to the bathroom and what I do there. They're so into my personal life. And this goes from the serfs, which we call slaves, really, all the way to the noble people, up and down. Yeah, and Alex, his son Alexander II, who probably, in many ways, in my the way that I see him, that uh, I actually am very sympathetic towards him in a way because at least he tried. He did. He, you know, he's been known as the emancipator of the serfs. Uh, Alexander the First, Nicholas the First, knew that serfdom was evil. They knew it was a bad system. Economically, it was horrible for the Russians, not just for the serfs, for everybody. It's a bad economy when you're just relying on 60% of your, 70% of your population to work, and you have to take care of them, and they have no incentive to work harder. It's just, you know, hopefully you don't whip me. 
I'll, I'll work as much as I have to to avoid getting hurt, but I have no incentive to work harder. I'm not going to get anything extra. But make no bones about it, Alexander II was an autocrat. He believed in his right to be the ruler. It was a God-given one. And he still kept up a lot of the secret police issues, but not much as much as Nicholas did. But he had a lot of assassination attempts against him. Nicholas putting this clamp down on Russia made people more and more angry. Just think about trying to uh, keep a teenager in, you know, commits a crime or, you know, does something bad. And you say, you're going to have to be in your room for the next two weeks. Hmm. He's going to spend two weeks getting really pissed off. The Russian people spent decades under the thumb of Nicholas I, making them angry and angry. And then comes the Crimean War, where it showed how backwards the Russians had become again. I mean, Nicholas went so far as to think that building railroads was a bad thing for Russia, that it would actually demoralize the people and make them worse off morally as a people if we build too many railroads and have this whole as transportation. And, and his education minister actually believed that it's better for me to keep the Russian people stupid. You know, that way they don't, they don't think too much and they won't get all upset about things. Uh-huh. And then the Crimean War comes around and the Russians, I mean, the British, the French, the Sardinians come in and they slap the hell out of the Russians. That um, education minister kind of sounds a little familiar just from recent events. Yeah, you know, I've actually <laughs> thought about that and said, boy, that sounds awfully familiar. You know, but veiled comments like that. It's <laughs> the the Russians at that point by the mid eighteen hundreds, you know, here's the Crimean War, which was precipitated by things like the Treaty of Adrianople. It was another battle in a town called Istanbul now, and Jerusalem, where they would especially Jerusalem where they would clash as to who would control the holy sites of Christendom. Was it the Catholics or was it going to be the Orthodox? There's that little battles. They actually had a riot and kind of an interesting riot in the 1820s where the, most of the, it was priests on both sides who had knives, clubs, <laughs> some with guns, and they would fight on these holy sites, this one holy site, and they got into an all out brawl. It was kind of like the gangs of New York. Yeah, wouldn't you like to get a time machine and go back to that, get some popcorn and watch that? Just watch a bunch of priests fight each other with clubs and guns? Yeah, it, it, <laughs> you know, I, when I read the uh, material about it in the news reports, it's just like, okay, this makes good movie. You know, Hollywood's got to pick this one up. I don't know if it would be a tragic comedy or just an outright <laughs> comedy. I mean, it was, here they are, and things started seething, and, and the... Russians and the British, who were trading partners for a long time, uh, under Alexander I, when Napoleon attacked one of the first treaties, the Treaty of Tilsit, actually, uh, they said, well, you know, we got to stop trading with Britain, Russia, and that's how we're going to choke you off. And the Russians were like, yeah, sure, okay, don't worry about it, we'll trade with you still. Mm-hmm. You know, They had a good relationship with Britain, but Britain was starting to look at things going, hmm, you know, we got this big country you call India. That we control. You know, they want to control Afghanistan and Pakistan and all this area. And the Russians are starting to creep down. 
And if you look at the cartoons of the 1840s, 1850s, Russia was the big bear. Right. And they were starting to gobble up parts of the world. And they were this evil group. And again, the West looking at Russia, this big evil bear. And they invade Crimea. And hundreds of thousands of people died. And the Russians, again, had another feeling of, oh, this is our land. We've spilt an awful lot of blood here. So they have this deep connection to Crimea for a second time. First one with Tartars attacking them. The second time they fight this war. And then the animosity with, with England, which is kind of unusual because the Russian czars were related to Queen Victoria. Right. Mm-hmm. Edward, George, uh, you know, they were all cousins. You know, the Ger- they were all partly, mostly German. And by the time Nicholas II comes around, the Russian czar is actually 97% German. Yeah, that's where the hemophilia comes from. Exactly, from Victoria's mm-hmm. side. You know, and they're more British and German than they are Russian. Right. You have this contest between Britain and Russia. It's called the Great Game, which is, in many ways, I see it as more like a precursor to the Cold War. Or maybe the Cold War is like a continuation of it in some ways. And it was, again, going back to this Afghanistan-India thing. Uh, Russians were coming down, taking over Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, all these uh, Turkic lands. And they were having their eyes on the Ottoman Empire, which was collapsing. And Britain saw India, their crown jewel, the way they were exploiting the Indian people and all their you know, riches. And they didn't want to lose that. And so they played this game, this risky game, one against the other and trying to hold off each other. Uh, it's a fast, I should do a podcast just on the great game. Yeah, it's a fascinating subject. There's a great book about it. I don't remember the author's name, but I actually have it. It's called The Great Game, and it pretty much is a, is just that. It's the British against the Russians and against their uh, just playing this jockeying for position in Central Asia. It's fascinating stuff. And this would go on for a long time. Uh, Churchill viewed the Russians with a great deal of trepidation. Uh, even more so when they turned to the Bolsheviks. Right. They became the USSR. Uh, then all the animosities, the Great Bear and everything like that just became heightened. Right. And then after World War II, it just explodes to the Cold War, which yeah. I think we're starting to deal with again today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But before we get to that, I mean, the Soviet experience, I mean, how does that, do you have any opinion on how that kind of holds Russia back and how that influences what we see today there? Yeah, that's a fascinating time. We we know that the Western powers, when the Bolsheviks came into power under Lenin in 1917, 1918, through the Russian Civil War, they aided the opposition. They viewed communism as a threat. They already had a fear of Russia because of her immense size and resources and the number of people they had. Now they saw this Bolshevik revolution 
that was uh, Lenin's talking about a world revolution now. And so they viewed it with a lot of fear and wanted to seal them off and to isolate them. So Russia has to start going back to that thing after the Mongol invasion. There's a wall. They begin to wall themselves off from the rest of the world. And then they have a person named Joseph Stalin coming in. And I think if you ever want to describe paranoia, describe Joseph Stalin. Uh, he is paranoid about everything. Uh, this man turns out to be one of the great mass murderers of all time. He creates this new country where he sees this nationalism in Ukraine, Belarus, Crimea, and he starts deporting large amounts of those people to different regions of the Soviet Union. So, And he puts Russians in there, and he destabilizes their old traditions. So now we have Ukraine, which has fewer Ukrainians, Crimea, which has fewer Crimeans, and so on and so forth. And so he changes the dynamics during the early part of the Soviet Union. And then you have the invasion of Hitler in 39. And yet again, the Russians going, really? Now, one more time we have to deal with this. And this war would take 40 million lives. We look at our, our losses, you know, 1 million here, World War II. Look at other countries, the Civil War comparisons. They're not even in the same realm. Uh, I have a Russian Rulers History podcast group on Facebook, and they were po- posting about this one uh, girl named Rosa who was a sniper for the Soviet Union. She was yeah. 19. 19 year old girl, you know, who had like 50 confirmed kills mm-hmm. and died during the war. Uh, the Russian people were you know, devastated yet again. They had this fear again of the West. And then what happened right after 45? You have the Americans, the British, and the French saving the Germans. Yeah. And you look at the Russians. They said, okay, we're going to build this Iron Curtain, which uh, Churchill talks about when he visits a college in the United States. Can you really blame them at that point? You know, we've just, they've been attacked enough times. <laughs> And they're just like, this is enough. We're going to build a buffer zone yeah. between us and the West. What's interesting about that, Mark, about this Iron Curtain speech, and you know that's so so held up as this is Churchill, the elder, the elder statesman that is warning the world about the dangers of the the, the godless communists, and that he was uh, that he had just the world had just been saved from Nazism. Now we got to save it from communism. Well, what's interesting about that is that in the end of 1944, Churchill had gone to to Moscow to talk to Stalin, and they pulled out a napkin and wrote out these percentages of this is the percentage of control that you'll have in Poland, 90%, we have 10%, uh, Greece, we have 90%, you have 10%, and there were other countries that were 50-50. And basically, the percentages were kind of meaningless. It just meant, okay, you have control over these countries. We have control over these other countries. And essentially, Churchill had helped set up the Iron Curtain. And then here he is, two years later, warning the world against it. I've just always found that interesting. 
And, you know, we always think about Churchill as saying, well, you know, Russia, it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. So mm-hmm. we all remember what he said to the, on the BBC in 1939. What we forget is the rest of what he said. He said, but perhaps there's a key. A key is Russian national interest. And that cannot be in accordance with the interest of the safety of Russia that Germany should plant itself upon the shores of the Baltic Sea that should overrun the Balkan states and subjugate the Slavonic peoples of southeastern Europe. That would be contrary to the historic life interests of Russia. Yeah. He says, well, they're very mysterious, I might, which I don't think they are. They have to operate in their self-interests. Do we do anything different in this country? Hmm. You know, if, if we built a, mili- a missile base, or the Russians did in, hmm, Cuba, would we get upset? <laughs> yeah, we sure did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If we build a missile defense system in Poland, the Russians would be a little bit upset. Mm-hmm. I think they have some justification for that. When uh, we look at the, the, the history of what's going on in their countries. And the part about the Cuban Missile Crisis that usually gets glossed over is the fact that we already had missiles in Turkey that were essentially just as close to the Soviet Union as the missiles in Cuba would have been to us. So it was like evening out, not really defending Khrushchev for what he did, because I think what he did was pretty foolhardy, but it was almost like evening out the score, you know, okay, if you have these here, we're going to put these here. And what people don't realize is that part of the new, the uh, negotiations was we're removing those missiles in Turkey. Yeah. And we never actually did. Those. Yeah, we just said we would. And, uh, of course, the whole Cuban Missile Crisis led to the downfall of Khrushchev. And <laughs> just the realization that we, you just can't put things there and not expect the other side to be really pissed off. <laughs> yeah, good point. We're getting more to, closer to the to now. So the Soviet Union falls. They split into about, what is it, like 16 different countries. Of course, the largest of those is Russia. Still still the largest country in the world without the other 15, and which is mind-boggling. But uh, And we get to Yeltsin and then finally Putin. So the question is, in your opinion... What does Russia want now? What is Putin specifically? Does he want like a sphere of influence for Russia? I think the first thing is a one word answer. Money. Yeah. Uh, In 1976, when I took my first Russian history course, uh, Professor Average said, within 25 years, the Soviet Union will fail to exist. Really? Because a lot of people did not. And even in 1990, people did not predict that it would fall. And he predicted it pretty close, didn't he? Yeah. And we just looked at him and went, you're crazy. Yeah. We're in the middle of a Cold War there. This Goliath, there's no way. He said, they're broke. Hmm. I don't have any money. But we, when Gorbachev took, before, shortly before he took power, after uh, Chernenko died, he asked to see the budget. And he was told, that's not for you to see. Hmm. He didn't really know what was going on until just about the end of his reign as the head of the Soviet Union. He didn't know how bad it was. There was hints that 
they were borrowing, they were taking money from people's savings accounts. There was no money left. So when Yeltsin took over after Gorbachev, they were flat broke. You think we have a budget deficit? There was no nothing in comparison to what the Soviet Union had and then Russia. They flat out had no money. They couldn't make anything, but they do have one thing. They have resources. They have more oil than the rest of the world. They have more gold, more diamonds, more everything. Problem is, it's way out there. And we remember Nicholas I, they didn't want to build those railroads. Their infrastructure to get from way out, three, four, five thousand miles away into where it's needed is rough. So what we really need is, and I did a lecture at a Rotary Club once on this, said when oil was at $100 a barrel, Russia's economy was chugging along like crazy. Yeah. Things were fabulous. The people were just, who's Vladimir Putin, my hero, we love you. <laughs> it's what, $40 a barrel? Yeah. Laying people off. They're economically distressed. There's a lot of problems going out there. He needs money. He needs that oil price to go up. He needs to destabilize things because how do you raise prices of oil? Create fear. Create fear that supplies are going to be cut. So you launch an attack here. You destabilize a region here. Where would you really want to destabilize? Well, where's the big oil released? Let's destabilize that region. You know, let's hmm. cause some problems here and there. That will raise the price of oil. Problem is, it's just not happening because there was a development in around 2000 of natural gas in the United States. And the guys who bought the most oil stopped buying the most oil. And they're like, well, hi, Russia. <laughs> we just don't need you. We don't need your oil over here or there. We don't. Needed as much, and no matter how hard they try, and they're still trying old school tactics of destabilizing parts of the world, like attack Ukraine, annex Crimea, do things like that, attack Syria, fester a war out there. Still not working. And so now they're trying a different tact. Who's the one country that we need to boost prices of oil? Be the U.S. The U.S. So where are we going to go? What are we going to look at? Might as well look toward the West. Let's look at the United States. Let's destabilize there. That's where I think things are happening right now. And I think we're going to start finding more and more that there's been concerted trials of trying to attack infrastructure, trying to attack things and destabilize areas. Maybe that will work. I don't think it's going to be very successful, and I think he's going to figure that out. Yeah. But also, there's another point. I don't think Putin's the power behind hmm. all of this. I think there's a lot of other people involved, the oligarchs. Right. This is an oligarchic government. This is not one man. This is not a czar. This is not a Stalin, Lenin, Khrushchev, Gorbachev. This is a bunch of people who are plundering their country. Uh, I think they're they're taking trillions of dollars out of Russia and parking it overseas and 
this is where I might get in a little trouble by saying these type of things, but I really think it's kind of obvious that well, where's all this money gone that they made when oil was a hundred, hundred and twenty dollars a barrel. Right. Yeah, and that's that's an extremely good point. Uh, but well, I mean, like if you ask the Democrats, I mean, they, they especially all the rhetoric during the election, they were talking about how. You know, I mean, Stal- I mean, Putin might have been, might as well have been a Stalin or a Hitler. And then if you ask the Republicans, it was kind of like all kind of real, really downplayed in many ways. Uh, so it all depended on who you asked on each each partisan politics. But it, it, I'm wondering too: is there kind of a nationalist desire on the part of Putin or whoever is in control? To control places like the Crimea, you know, I mean, Putin has made statements like the end of the Soviet Union was the worst thing that ever happened in the history of mankind. You know, that's a bit of hyperbole there. But, uh, it, you know, so is the in trying to make um, overtures to the Central Asian states as well. So, I mean, that could have something to do with oil just as easily, too. But do you do you feel that there is that they are trying to rebuild like not necessarily the Soviet Union, but like a sphere of influence that they want to have in their part of the world. Absolutely. I, I think what they want is respect. Yeah. This was a superpower. There were two. Soviet Union, United States. Right. It was taken away from them. They felt like, once again, lack of respect. Oh, they're the Orientals. Oh, they're the Orthodox. Oh, they're them people out there they're uncultured they're barbaric whatever it goes back a thousand years again yeah they look down upon and they're feeling like you know damn it we're sick and tired of being looked down upon give us some respect and in some respects and i just finished writing a book called uh, understanding putin looking Hmm. at russian uh, looking at the russian rulers in history and i'm hoping if there's an agent out there my book's ready (laughs) we're i just looked at it and said we were concerned about dealing with Islamic uh, terrorists. They've been dealing with this for 500 years. Sure. Probably more. They have a feeling for it. Uh, you think that 9-11 was something? They've had hospitals and schools taken over, thousands of people killed in different things, and, and they handle yeah. things a little differently than we would. The Moscow Theater where they killed uh, terrorists and hostages? My brother happened to have been in the theater two weeks before. Wow. <laughs> and he's just like, thank God I went when I did. Yeah. You know, and, and he was kind of nervous about it and shook. I said, well, I could have been there. You've got a lot of that. They've been dealing with this on their borders. And this is as if Islamic State was in Cuba, Mexico, right on the border. It's right there in front of them. And we're like, well, let's not talk to them. We'll just do it on our own. When 9-11 happened, Vladimir Putin was one of the first people that called George Bush. Said, hey, is there anything yeah. I can do for you? Yeah. Uh, we don't pay any respect to them for that. And they felt like, well, hell, thanks a lot. You know, and, and it's just one disrespect after another. When they took the Crimea, as I said before, Crimea is in their soul. Khrushchev gave it away and I, I think it's some drunken vodka haze. <laughs> Let's give a Crimea to the Ukraine. Yeah. You know, why not? And, and I don't know Ukrainians have had 
disagreements with them about this. That's really what happened. I and mean, it, he just gave it as a gift. And it didn't really it matter because it was all the Soviet Union. Right. And it was just like, yeah. oh, I'm giving it to Ukraine, which is basically us. So I'm giving it to us. Yeah. So, no, you know, he never thought that it was going to break up. And there, remember what I said about Stalin taking Ukrainians out of Ukraine, Crimeans out of Crimea, putting Russians in there. That eastern part of Ukraine is a lot of the settlements that Stalin put in there. So to think that, oh, they're just thugs that have been sent in by Putin. No, they've been there since the 40s and the 30s. Mm -hmm. They've been there a while. Right or wrong, they feel a deeper connection to Russia. So this is not a easy situation that we have to deal with. We're going on this, oh, Russia's bad. We're good. Ukraine, good. You know, Russia, bad. It's yeah. a lot more difficult than that. And we have to start talking. Unfortunately, you know, they, in my estimation, got involved in this recent presidential election. You they're, know, they're very good hackers. I tell you, my Russian Rulers History podcast uh, site has been, they've attempted to hack it so many times. Really? I can't even tell you. I've, I had one day where I was just getting an email every like 10 seconds on multiple really? texts, tens of thousands of them. Thankfully, I have a great <laughs> best friend who happens to be a whiz at, you know, at security and stuff like that because we're in the medical field and professionally and that's a big thing for us uh yeah so we've seen it uh and and i don't i think my servers are a lot more protected than the dnc and and others uh, you know and, and to say that he didn't have any connections with russia come on you know yeah got pictures of him out there he's in moscow he's been out talk about trump you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're looking at this and, and, and I also, you know, I'm going to say about the naivete of Obama on this and his people just, gosh, talk to him, start treating them as a major power in a country, even if they're not the superpower they once were. Yeah. Yeah. Show somebody respect and they will show you respect and they won't try to slap you. If you, if you treat them like a child, they're going to act like one. That's that's the one thing that I probably the one thing I agree with Trump on was like at least the stance on Russia wasn't just trying to punish them for just about everything that they did. And I I wanted to make this point. I have a guy that's on my Facebook uh like sent me a friend request, but he's like actually in Donetsk and he's fighting with the Russian backed rebels. And he makes a claim, and I've heard this claimed elsewhere, that some of the Ukrainians are basically like uh, some of the Ukrainian soldiers are almost neo-Nazis in a way. Like that's some crazy stuff going on over there. Oh, there, there is that. I mean, I, I know most Ukrainians are not, but there's a very deep fascist movement. Uh, yeah. They had a lot of collaborators during World War II. No question about it. I know quite a bit about this because my dad was in the German army. My dad was a half-blind pianist. He was a concert pianist who his family was vehemently anti-Nazi. 
but you had to be very quiet. I mean, his whole family was almost put into the concentration camps uh, because my grandfather wouldn't put a picture of Hitler in his apartment. Mm. Uh, he did uh, later on when he was seen shaking hands with Molotov. The SS was not too happy with that picture. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he said, hey, it meets the law. You know, but uh, I also talked to my mother's brother fought for the Nazis in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And he supposedly was killed. Uh, I found out uh, about a year after my mom died that he actually lived till 2003 in Paris. I met a lot of the people who fought there. Uh, a lot of them Ukrainians who so despised Stalin for things like the Holomodor. Rightly so. Famine that they yeah. murdered millions upon millions of Ukrainians. They have a deep hatred for the Russians. So do anything to fight against them. So there's all this historical stuff. And one thing that I always remember with my mom, she said, oh, those damned Croatians, you know, they they uh, collaborated with the the Nazis in 39. And I said, well, that's the only thing you have against them. Oh, no, they've been doing this for 500 years. <laughs> yeah. So, mom, I think it's time to give it up. <laughs> you know, this is an animosity you guys are carrying for 500 years. Yeah. If you would start talking about it and say, why don't we bury the past? Let's move into the future. There's a lot of past and there's a lot of pain. And that Holomodor, if people should read about it, I, I did an episode on it and it yeah. was horrific. I mean, millions upon millions of people purposely starved to death. Right. And it was on the hands of the Russians. I say the Ukrainians are kind of a little peeved off at this whole thing. So right. they're going to have that, that issue as well. So, again, we're not talking about it. The media talks about the sensational. It's us, the good guys, them, the bad guys. And that's it. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, the, the good guys aren't so good and the bad guys aren't maybe so bad. Yeah, I want to make this point, too, about uh, Russia and the kind of the sphere of influence. You know, when the Berlin Wall fell, and I'm thinking this is like 1989 or probably 1990, there were certain promises that were made to Gorbachev by NATO that said, we're not going to push NATO east. Um, Germany will reunite, but we're not going to any other country east. We're not going to push to your border. And he was given reassurances that that would never happen. Well, the Soviet Union fell, and now, you know, even the Baltic states that were once a part of the Soviet Union are members of NATO and the European Union. And I'm sure that Russia feels like, even though that was a promise made to the Soviet Union, I'm sure the Russians still feel like that was a promise that was broken by the West. So that increases their, you know, distrust. And we got to remember that Putin was a KGB officer. Yeah. The Soviet Union, and he remembers that time, and that's a lot of these broken promises that we did come back to haunt us. And I think it's again we have to start talking openly and honestly about it. You know, the Obama administration was the us great versus them. I think we're doing this again with the Trump administration. Uh, boy, I, I just wish we could have some civility and just sit down. Right. And have people understand the differences between the, the uh, countries and the similarities between them. They they don't want war. They don't want to risk their country. 
for all of this. They want to have what we have. You know, they want to have prosperity. They want the people to be okay. You know, it's it's common human needs. Yeah. We just have to look at their historical issues and say, how can we arrive to that position without I, I, having to hammer each other? I think the Ukraine was a bridge too far for them because that was saying, okay, no, you're not going to take the Ukraine. This is the NATO and the European Union are not going to come this far east. They could accept the Baltic states, but not Ukraine. That wasn't going to happen. And I think that was the line in the sand that was drawn. And that's kind of where we've been since the beginning of 2014. So do you think that we're in a new Cold War now? Yeah. Uh, I think we're in the early stages of a Cold War. Uh, I think we can diffuse it really better now than we could in 1947, 48. You know, when it was us having the nukes. Versus them just trying to get them. Uh, I think we're in an early stage that can be very easily diffused. It just has to be these people sitting down and how can we do it? Uh, right. You know, is Rex Tillerson the right guy as a secretary of state? <laughs> and he's got the connections in there. Yeah. But, you know, I, my concern is that it's just a bunch of oligarchs are going to talk about how we're going to make a lot of money. Yeah. There's I'm worried s- about the people. Right. There's been speculation with Tillerson that what they're looking at is p- with Putin or whoever it is that they're looking at possibly, you know, I guess exploiting the Arctic. And a lot of that is in Russian hands, I guess. So I think that's some of the speculation with him. Why? Well, you know, everybody loves in Russia is thinking, whoa, global warming. This is cool. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> those ports up there are and close, <laughs> and Vladivostok and all the other ones that are ice bound, not so much anymore. Yeah, and they're looking at that northern route because they got a lot of oil up there, and hey, they can really pump it. Hey, Luke, you've got a you got a friend that's from Russia, some guy that you know, and uh, what has he told you about it? He told me uh, Russia is poor. And everyone's trying to move over here that the government has some kind of subsidiary thing going on. And uh, he, no one can afford to even like have land or a house or anything. So they're all moving to the States and whatever area he was in. I don't know. He said uh, Turkish w- women are the best. <laughs> <laughs> he, he said. Uh, that's all I can remember right now. Yeah. He brought me some Russian vodka. I wasn't too impressed. It was uh, not, <laughs> not the best quality. <laughs> and I found that with the vodka is pretty funny. I was sitting around with a bunch of old Russians once, and they said, oh, the best vodka around is Smirnoff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I go, that's not even Russian. <laughs> and they went, nope. <laughs> but it's damn better than the garbage we used to get out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I know the whole thing about vodka, I think it came from the Venetians. Oh, really? That in the 1200s where they started bringing it. So it's not even a true Russian thing, but they sure have taken to it. Uh, you know, they, they are poor, uh, but they were a lot better off when oil was 110. Mm-hmm. Tell you that. And uh, there were a lot. And I lived near Lake Tahoe and I used to live there. And I remember a group of Russians uh, came out and they were just, you know, spending money like crazy. They got all these furs and they got all these dirty Americans and they're cursing at us. And I, 
looked at one of them, and I could tell they could also speak English. And I said, you know, by the way, some of us understand some Russian. <laughs> and we don't appreciate that. And yet, I mean, they all just turned ashen. And I look at all of them, and I'm like, how do you all have so much money? And this wasn't just five or six. About 50, 60 Russians. Wow. Living so, in Lake Tahoe in the United States. Yeah. And, and, and Incline Village, Lake Tahoe, is one of the wealthiest towns there are. And here they are visiting the, the Hyatt Grand Regency up there. It's like $400 a night. They're spending thousands on gambling and stuff like that. I don't live too far from Vegas, seeing the same thing. Some people are doing very, very well in Russia. Right. The common people, not so much. If we could get something there, because Putin's popularity is based on the general population. Mm-hmm. believing them and and when we look at their history they want a strong leader they feel that that's necessary to protect them so he's there you know take a shirt off right on a horse <laughs> go shoot some caribou <laughs> get in the, the judo dojo and show his black belt off they like that but it only goes so far when they can't eat anymore have oh, you seen the have you seen the photoshop picture of uh it's like Putin on the horse with uh, Trump and Alex Jones behind him. Have you seen that? No. <laughs> yes, I have. I thought that was hysterical. Hey, uh, do you see a lot of uh, the common Russian people coming over here? I mean, have we had people trying to get away, like what Luke was talking about with his friend? Well, I get emails all the time from Russian women wanting to marry American guys uh, you know? yeah. <laughs> all the time. I actually know a couple of my friends who actually married Russian women wanted to come out here i've met a lot of russians who've tried to come out and mm-hmm. have successfully uh they were really worried about it they stopped the uh, adoptions yeah. a couple of years ago of russian children because they were so many of them were coming over yeah so that is there what about the role now of the russian orthodox church and like putin as kind of this defender of the faith in a way because we're seeing a lot over here especially kind of like the evangelicals really religious right in the united states that have really celebrated putin as saying that he's a defender of christianity boy i tell you there's an opportunist if i've ever seen one uh the russian orthodox church was tortured under communism Uh, it wasn't until gorbachev that they were actually allowed to survive and so many of their clergy were members of the KGB and just to to live. So to say he's a defender, I'd say he's not an offender of the Russian Orthodox Church. And when I see the patriarch wearing a Rolex, I get a little concerned when I see them in a scandal with you know cigarette sales. Uh, you know, and I'm Russian Orthodox, and I get a little concerned about those type of things. Right, they're unChristian. Uh, I think he's using the Christian church, the Russian Orthodox Church, to his advantage, PR-wise. Uh, I think that his wife, likely, you know, religious. I think that he's he's a communist that now has turned. I don't see the religiosity in him yeah. and his actions. So I'm kind of dubious about that. I just don't think when you're offended so badly and then you're let go and like we're not mess with you anymore and the church is like all hell putin he's defending it or is he just not putting him under his thumb anymore you know right. it's a matter of perspective here so i think it's the perspective that he's not putting the church down after what, 90 years yeah oppression 
So it's, I, I think that evangelicals should back off a little bit on this one and yeah. take a clearer view of what he's really doing, which is laissez-faire. Let him be. Right. And, and, and also, too, I mean, what I think a lot that don't realize over here when they say, oh, Putin's so great and the Russian Orthodox Church is so great is that, you know, I have a friend that has looked into some of this and realized that a lot of other Christian groups, denominations that have gone over there and tried to witness in Russia, they're usually blocked out because the Russian Orthodox Church has said, nope, nothing but the, but the Orthodox. We can't have any other been, denomination. But they don't realize it. has been going that. on for centuries. Yep. That, that's been a very big thing. They didn't like the Protestants, the Catholics, mm-hmm. uh, the Muslims, Jews, anyone. They isolated all of them. Yeah. So this is a historical continuation. Right, and we're not even getting into the old believers and the the other sects that had to leave because they were basically pushed out of Russia. Right. Mark, uh, we're almost running out of time, but in the time we have left, I wanted to talk about, this is you know more in the conspiranormal vein, and uh, that would be the story of Fyodor Kuzmik and the possibility that, well, it's kind of like, you know, Elvis faking his own death, right? This is one of the mm-hmm. czars faking their own death and possibly living a life as a monk. Yeah, there's a fascinating book about the subject. Uh, Fyodor Kuzmich was a aesthetic monk who all of a sudden comes out of the woods. And here's a man who speaks multiple languages, extremely well-educated, uh, with soft hands tall and they're going well where did he come from and all of a sudden the czars are kind of like giving him special things and after he dies they're visiting his tomb and putting little gifts on it and all this alexander the first when he came to power it was at the murder of his father paul and he felt guilty for his entire life about that napoleon actually taunted him once when napoleon had arrested and uh, executed a a French nobleman, Alexander was all in a huff and he goes, Hey, well, how about the guys who killed your dad? He didn't do anything to them. And Alexander was just furiated by that. And he felt this deep guilt and he became more and more aesthetic and into mysticism in the later part of his reign after he defeated Napoleon until he was in a town called Taganrog where in 1825 he mysteriously dies of the disease, we're not sure what it is, but very few people saw his body. Few had ever, you know, actually done a true autopsy. There had been those who did it who were in his group, but they had all the you know, possibility of hiding this. I really, and, and the, the material put out by this one author, and name escapes me, I think it's Trubitskoy not mistaken, that said, everything you look at points to Fyodor Kuzmich being Alexander I, mm-hmm. that he left his power, gave it to his brother, first Constantine, and then Nicholas, and said, I, I don't want to be here. And his wife died about a year later. I think he had so much guilt, what he did, that he just walked away from it, and it would fit with the Russian psyche. Many of the Russians who I've met who go into the monasteries, and I, I used to frequent the monasteries. I actually studied to be a priest when I was 16 until they said I asked too many questions. 
<laughs> and that probably wasn't my calling. Uh, that people had done things, and they kind of like came. My mom was one. She was a partisan fighter during World War II. Uh, when my brother visited Belgrade, he found out that my mother was a war hero, mm. and she became very aesthetic in her later years. You know, and so I see this as a, a theme in Russian people that they try to atone for their past sins. Yeah. So I think this was something that they had actually, I, I really firmly believe, and a lot of the, I think the major collegiate historians will vehemently argue with me and say, no, no, no. But their evidence is very meek. It's just a belief in what they've been taught and what the academics believe in. You know, this case, here's a conspiratorial theory that actually holds a lot of water with very few holes in it. Yeah. And, and I think when you did the show on it, I think that was 2013, but mm -hmm. hasn't there been in 2015, I think I saw an article where they did some DNA tests comparing the body of Fedor Kuzmik to other members of the Romanov family, and they found that there were some similarities. Isn't that true? Yeah. And, uh, you know, because they're interbreeding and they're breeding with the, the, uh, the Germanic groups and the English, you know, kind of mix things about. And Alexander may have been one of the last of the Russian czars. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There, there's a lot of convincing evidence. Science really points to him having left Taganrog. And, and there was also this boat that mysteriously left. And we think it's the British that helped with it. Mm. And that he just went, you know, I, I've had it. I, I want to go into, uh, you know, monastic life. Right. And that will heal my soul. So I think it's one of those things that's a great mystery that we may never truly solve, but I'm going to vote on the side of Fyodor Kuzmich is actually Tsar Alexander yeah. first. I'm pretty much like 99% convinced that's, <laughs> that's mm -hmm. what it is. Uh, Rob, is there anything that you wanted to ask or? Um, <laughs> the, the bulk of my knowledge of Russian history comes from Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> and that song tradition has been running through my head now for 45 minutes. <laughs> that's it. It is. Very prophetic. You know, I, I, I remember I actually saw Fiddler on the Roof with uh, Fred Ebb and my brother. Fred wrote Cabaret, Zorba the Greek, and that. And he, I remember him pointing at the stage when they sang Tradition. He goes, isn't that Russia? Huh. <laughs> and my brother and I like, you betcha. That really is. So, that's a fabulous comment. I mean, like, just childhood memory of that. <laughs> Well, Mark, uh, we're going to close this section out, but uh, tell everyone where they can contact you and what you're working on next. Well, it's RussianRulersHistory.com uh, or on our Facebook group, which is fabulous. We've got about 1,800, 1900 members on it. And they show pictures. We have a, a woman whose mother was a docent in uh, uh, the uh, museum in St. Petersburg, the Hermitage. So they send us these fabulous pictures and stuff. So those are two places to really, you know, get a hold of me, see what we're up to. Uh, I'm hoping to get my book, Understanding Putin, you know, published in the near future. It's a mere 650 pages. <laughs> Again, Russian history, that's huge. 
And, uh, and so that's where you find me, put my name out there in Google. You'll find lots on health and, and other issues that I deal with. So it's just been a fun seven years and I hope I've got a couple more years left in me. Absolutely. Well, Mark, I can't recommend it enough. Go check it out. It's a great podcast and, uh, it's very well digestible. I mean, you can listen to each show is at least about like 20 to 30 minutes long. So it's well, well recommended. Uh, Mark, stay on the line. Thank you for being, coming on the show and stay on the line for us. And we're going to close this section out on Conspiranormal. I didn't know they made DBZ Xenoverse for 360, dude. That's awesome. <laughs> and you know, I have my I have my octopus here, so that I don't touch the mic ever again. <laughs> Adam, squeeze it. I, I was wondering why there was a pink octopus right next to me. I put, I put that there just for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's really and I didn't get it. I was sitting over here. You know, I, I fiddle with things. You know, I fiddle with the phone. I, Fiddle with the with with you probably everybody's heard it. Fiddling with the mic stand, and, <laughs> you know. I got to touch something, and you know, I got. But he, but Rob gave me this little pink little octopus <laughs> <laughs> to make that the picture for the show. Me with the <laughs> pink little octopus, That's adorable. Oh, thank you. Anyway, uh, yeah. So, what did you guys think? It's a lot to digest for me. It, yeah, there's a lot. There. He's. Mark obviously knows a thousand times more about Russia than I will ever know. But it, it was, I mean, I, I, I did learn a few things. Well, you were telling me that uh, you tried to, to read War and Peace. I did. And you could not get past the 800 page introduction. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the version I got, it was like, I mean, it was like 99 cents on Kindle. But it came with this uh, preface that was written by somebody who's like a, a, a Tolstoy, you know, expert or whatever. And it explains the whole context of the story and what was going on in other parts of, in parts of Europe and how it pertains to everything and his background and his history. And I got through all of that and started getting into the story. And it was just like, I would read a page and, and have to like try to reread it. And it was just mind numbing. Well, since we're discussing such, um, Works of classical literature, such as War and Peace. And I know Luke probably read War and Peace, so we don't really have to explain it to him. Yeah, dude. And I mean, Dostoevsky and his, his wonderful library. You've seen my collection, man. I'm, oh man, tomes, tomes <laughs> of classics. I, I believe that you just got finished reading The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, all like five volumes of it yes it's true and uh um, do you sit there with like your little sit there and you're like your little powdered wig and, and read it your nightstand i do put powder in my hair yes <laughs> <laughs> i've got a little right with a little quill pen a bubble pipe and, and a robe a bubble pipe. <laughs> that's probably like a new hipster thing right it's like look like you're like one of the founding fathers L look like you're a uh, a learned gentleman 
Yes. <laughs> mm. Yes, there's a band called the Upper Crust. Have you ever seen them? No. Called the Upper Crust, and they dress up like 18th century dandies. <laughs> you showed me that that was awesome but uh since we are yeah since we are talking about those wonderful classics of of literature let's talk about the the debasement of society and in the words of colonel kurtz from apocalypse now drop the bomb kill them all uh let's talk about oh i need to get my octopus, octopus. okay octopus yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh let's talk about the uh Catch me outside, girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was it catch me outside? How about that? How about that? So, Rob was blissfully unaware of this, and the key word there is blissfully. Uh, unlike the rest of us that have been subjected to it inadvertently, explain everyone what the uh, cash me outside. How about that? What that means to people who may be uninformed. So I, I think at the time she was like 12, the first time she went on Dr. Phil. <laughs> I'm pretty sure she was 13. Third, I think. The first yeah. time? Yeah. All right. Well, this is only a few months ago. All right. Well, yeah, she, she goes on Dr. Phil and she's, uh, appears to be like this unruly kid and her mom can't control her. And yeah. She stole her, she stole her mom's car. Yeah. She has a stripper pole in her room. <laughs> I'll uh, do it again. Uh, uh, she, she, she's been filmed twerking. Yeah. In uh in the in the twerk video that I watched on YouTube the other day, she <laughs> she uh she's got like two California king size beds in the background with like the finest like linens on them, and uh-huh, like, uh-huh. you know it's there's, so it uh, it appears that um she's living in a pretty upscale place, right? Yeah, she's real she's real deprived. Yeah, she? right. Uh huh. It, it's all it's all false, dude. It, it's all just an act. You think so? Oh yeah. You think it's totally fake? Well. From what I understand is that she she goes on Dr. Phil, and I just love Dr. Phil, man. I mean, he's just like, he talks like this, like, what do you think is your problem? Aren't you all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed? Aren't you all bright-eyed and (laughs) bushy-tailed? Why do you treat your mom like total crap? (laughs) Just learn to love me again. (laughs) (laughs) And so she goes on there, and of course you have the studio audience, right? And they're all rolling their eyes. And most of them are women. And she's talking about how there's these hoes are disrespecting her. <laughs> right. And uh, she says something to the effect of cash me outside. How about that? Which her mom has to translate for Dr. Phil and the rest of the studio audience to catch me outside. How about that? <laughs> Which means... We can go outside and fight and settle our differences. I've got to pull up right here. It says, uh, as her mother explains, noting the daughter's accent was acquired on the streets. Yes, the streets. Cash me outside means she'll go outside and do whatever she has to. How about that? Yes. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So this is what happened. She is sent to. This is one of those, you know, they try to reform the person. She's sent to some farm out in the middle of Montana or some place and where they are isolated from their parents, from the rest of the world. And they learn how to do things like uh, rope horses, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever they do. 
and you see the footage of this girl and she is she she is like turning back into normal you know like she can actually speak she can actually hold a coherent conversation you know she sees like an actual human being and while this is going on however this meme starts to come up which is the cash me outside how about that okay so it's all over the internet. You see it all over the place. Apparently, Tom Brady during the Super Bowl puts up something about the Super Bowl, said, cash me outside after he won. Uh, so like really famous people have used this thing. And this girl all of, become, all of a sudden has become internet famous, right? So she comes back from this horse ranch, unaware that this has happened, comes back and is now famous and her mother has gotten an agent and has gotten a lawyer for her so she can cash in on this fame that she has she now has cash me outside how about that closing clothing line she has her own clothing line this girl okay who would wear something so dated too? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was only that's so November, dude. So she has her own clothing line. She's been she's she's been in rap videos. <laughs> oh my god! She's been on Instagram. She's been on some Instagram videos. She has a video of herself uh, with fake a fake grill in her mouth, counting money. <laughs> Right? So she reverts back to the little thug she thinks she is <laughs> because now she's getting paid for it. Right? So the other day, her mother and her board a Spirit Airlines, I guess, to go film another Dr. Phil show, which she was back on with Dr. Phil. And she tells Dr. Phil on the show, by the way, that he wanted nothing. Like, I did what Oprah did for you. You were nothing before me. (laughs) (laughs) And Dr. Phil says, well, thank you for that. (laughs) But, you know, you need to be nice to your mother. So, yeah, she's been completely rewarded for bad behavior, but she gets on this plane, right? She gets into a fight with somebody on the plane and her and her mom are fighting with this woman and all three of them get kicked off the plane uh-huh. <laughs> off a of spirit airlines. which is like the, one of the cheapest airlines you could possibly get on it. Unbelievable, dude. <laughs> unbelievable. She has literally been rewarded for bad, despicable behavior. This is our society, <laughs> man. Yep. This is our culture. This runaway, you know, we talked a little bit about the meme thing when we talked about the Slender Man stuff last last time. And this is the same phenomenon, just in a different way. Well, it's just, it's, you know, I mean, we've had sleazy tabloid magazines and all kinds mm-hmm. of other media for, mm-hmm. for ages now. This is mm-hmm. just, you know, it's it's just our... Our culture just grabbing a hold of the internet, and I mean, it, right. it's it's real easy to like if something gets blown up like that to to profit off of it real quick and make some quick money. It'll all vanish real quick too. But it's it's just a it's a representation of something that's just right. 
doesn't make me proud about it, us as Americans. And her mother, her mother has is completely cashing in on it too. She's cashing in on her daughter's fame because she's got all oh, this set up for her. Yeah, you know, and she's she's just as bad. I mean, she's she fights with you know she she fights with people all the time. She's got this little Brooklyn tough girl accent, you know. And I mean, her, she, but as soon as she is not only the fact that this girl came back with this unprecedented amount of fame, everybody knows who she is now because you see it on friggin' t-shirts and on the internet all the time. Oh, they're going to have Tom a sh- Brady is friggin' po- is, is, is sending out pictures gonna of her ha- image. They're going to have a show on TLC next week. I, I guarantee oh, no, it. I guarantee, yeah, th- I'm sure. I'm sure they will. This is probably all like Luke said, if it's not completely fake, it's a complete setup in order to get some kind of. Some kind of deal out of it, some kind of show of just showing that we are the most despicable human beings. So you want to come watch this damn train wreck is what you want to do. It's the new honey boo boo. Yeah. So this, yeah. So exactly. Good point, Rob. This is exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, dude. Uh, daytime TV is such garbage. I, yeah, it's I, total garbage. I cannot handle it. Like I, I told, I told, uh, Kira that. Like it, daytime TV motivates me to actually like get off my butt. Like whenever I've got the day off and go do something constructive with my life, like that's how bad it is. You know, said you sit there just going, just I don't, I can't stand that. Catch me outside, girl. (laughs) Yeah, I mean it's it's literally motivation to like get out and do something. (laughs) Well, what's going to happen though when she's like eighteen, nineteen? And yeah, she gonna be she want to be known as the cash be outside girl because that's all she's got basically. That's I bet, all. I bet she's she gonna has. be pretty cute by then too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. On that note, uh, I did like this meme. However, I think this was funny. Uh, somebody put put glasses on her and says, "Confront me outdoors to resolve our pre existing issues with the battle of fisticuffs." Does that offer suit your needs? <laughs> what are fisticuffs? Boxing, uh, fighting with your hands, fighting yeah. with your hands. Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> I like the one that I just saw. When I was looking, I'm trying to keep up with you guys. It was a one of those billboards they have outside of churches. Oh no! It, yeah, it, yeah. It said, "Cash God inside." How about that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man, that's so edgy. I'm going to church next Sunday, dude. I'll be there. All right, guys. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, next time we will be having a guest from Ireland. Uh, first time, uh, do have it scheduled. Marty Stalker, who is the director of the film Hostage to the Devil, which nice. if you've not had a chance to watch that, Rob, I highly recommend it. I will before the show for sure. Uh, but it, do we, 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 we will be talking about Malachi Martin and I guess some of what he thinks about, uh, that and him making the film. Uh, so, guys, if there's nothing else to add, I think we will cash you outside. Yeah, about that. On the <laughs> other, on the other side, on conspiracy. Later.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big 